Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. I guess it's almost evening time. It's 5.56 p.m. It's almost dark outside, so I'm going to say good evening, everyone. Welcome. It is Sunday, November the 28th, 2021. I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located right here in Ovalo, Texas. I hope you're having, I hope you've had a great Sunday. If you're listening live, I hope you've had a great Sunday. If you are not listening live, whenever you may hear this, I hope you've had a great day, great evening, great morning. So wherever you may be, whenever, however you may be listening, I hope things are going well with you. And I hope you're ready to spend a little time, well, doing a little Bible study exercise. All right. Just really just as kind of some concluding thoughts and questions. We spent over an hour, well, about 56 minutes this morning working on Isaiah chapter 7. That is the Bible study exercise for us this week. If you haven't been with us with part one or part two, this week is all about Isaiah chapter 7. Remember, there is a curriculum that is free for you to use if you so desire. Go to theologycentral.net. Go to the blog section. You'll probably have to Go all the way down to the bottom and then go to page two. Then you will you should see a blog entry for Daily Discipleship Guide. Click on that. That'll take you to Ministry Grid. Sign up. The curriculum is free. Or as someone did earlier today, just email me and say, hey, I would like access to the curriculum. How do I get it? I'll send you the link to the blog article. Then you follow that link. You'll go to Ministry Grid. You'll sign up. You'll have access to it. It's absolutely free. Remember the uh, the Bible study curriculum, it supplements what we do. I don't follow it word for word. Sometimes I will do at least one episode where maybe I really rely on it, but it's just there. Sometimes I'm going to make references to it, but it's always there for you to use as a resource, as a reference source, as a reference tool. So when I'm asking you questions or giving you homework, sometimes the answers can be found in the curriculum, not always, because I don't tell you where the answers are, but I give you assignments. Remember, Bible study exercises are designed for me to do some teaching and then for me to ask a lot of questions and get you involved to move you from a passive listener to an active participant. We have a a new person who today said that they're going to be listening and they're going to be participating in all of the Bible study exercises. That is good to know. So I always like to hear that. A lot of people participate and don't tell me. And of course, you're always free to send me your work and your assignments to newsif at yahoo.com. And it's not so much you sending them to me for me to be able to like grade them or critique them. No, you send them to me so that I can benefit from them, okay? Because I look at what you did and I'm like, oh, wow, I never thought about that. Oh, whoa, look at that. And then I, I, then, I then turn on the microphone and look really, really smart. And then I don't give you any credit. Basically, you send me your stuff so that I can plagiarize. I am joking. I will always give you credit. But no, it really does benefit me. Your engagement with the text may be very different than my engagement with the text. Seeing what you do can then challenge me to relook at it. And then I turn on the microphone and share your perspective with everyone else. And then everyone benefits and everyone then hopefully grows in our understanding. But it's Isaiah chapter 7. That's what this week is all about. We still haven't really established an outline for the chapter. I gave a, I gave kind of a preliminary one in part one. 
Then today, I kind of started building an outline, and then I kind of stopped. Like, I was like, you know, I was trying, like, I was kind of working an outline, but then I didn't want to get, I like, I like you to do something. I did most of your work for you this morning, all right? So, we, 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 we don't really have an outline yet, but remember this week, read Isaiah 7, read it, 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 do an outline, and then I've given you other things to look up. I told you to look up Ahaz. I told you to look up uh, Isaiah, Isaiah's son and the meaning of his name. Remember Shear R. J- uh, Jashub, uh, that his son's name. We, we talked about it this morning, so we did that for you. We did an overview to the book of Isaiah. We, I didn't do a... a, a extensive one, but I did a partial one this morning to get you some some help with historical uh, setting and context and what the purpose of the book was. So we did a lot of that for you. And I think we did, I think we did a lot this morning, but right, I was sitting here and I was like, you know, I, I think I've done enough today. I think I'll just pack up and head home. But before I go, I, I, I just, right when I got ready to start packing everything up, I'm like, you know, there's still some things in Isaiah 7 that we still need to talk about. And so what I'm going to do is try to use this time to just try to point you in the right direction because I did all the work for you. I know that you're probably disappointed. You're probably sitting there going, man, he did most of the Bible study exercise for me. What am I going to do this week? I'm so disappointed. I'm so discouraged. I'm so depressed, but don't despair. I'm here to give you more assignments, all right? No, but I'm here to try to work through some issues because there's still some things here that, that I'm trying to figure out. And then you come to find out there's a lot of, of speculation and debate here. Now, I, I gave one of the people in the church this morning, when we got to the end, I saw that she was looking all kinds of things up. And I said, hey, do you have any question or anything you want to share? She said, no. And then as soon as we were done, she go, what I was looking up was, and I'm like, what? I wanted to say, you should have mentioned it so everyone could have heard it on that episode. Everyone could have heard it and benefited greatly uh, from it. Uh, but, but she brought up a whole very important subject that we'll try to, we'll try to get to this week. I may, I may give you that assignment uh, here in a minute, but are you ready? All right, Isaiah chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, open it, Isaiah chapter 7. I know what I know what you're going to say. You're going to read it again? Yes. Remember, you cannot read the text enough. The more we read it, the more we observe. The better our observation, the better at our chances of correct interpretation. The correctness of your interpretation is dependent upon the correction of your observation. This is just basic, basic Bible study rules, right? Bible study is almost 99%. I'm I'm, going to just argue Bible study is 100% observation. And then interpretation really falls into the level, the, 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 the area of hermeneutics. Bible study is observation. Hermeneutics is interpretation. You can't even get to the hermeneutical part of, st- of, of study until you've done the observation. Right? So, all right, here we go. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up towards Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it, right? And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim, and his heart was moved, and the heart of his people as the tree of the wood are moved with the wind, 
right? So we have some fear, we have some concern, we have war, we have a historical setting for the king of Ahaz, or, or King Ahaz. We have, we have so much going on there. I'm not going to go back and review everything we've talked about in part one and part two. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shear are Jashub, thy son at the end of the conduit, conduit of the upper pool and the highway of the fuller's field. And say unto him, take heed, be quiet, fear not, neither be faint hearted for the two tells of those smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of resin with Syria, Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria, uh, Ephraim and the son of Ramalia have taken evil counsel against thee saying, let us go up against Judah and vex it. Let us make it a breach therein for us and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabeal. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. So Ahaz is facing a very, very, very dangerous situation where there is confederacy. These nations are coming together. They're going to they're gonna try to bring them down, destroy kill, replace him, right? Not, not a good situation to be in. God sends him a message through Isaiah. Do not fear. Do not worry. Do not be faint-hearted. This is not going to happen. And Isaiah happens to bring his son along. And we talked about the significance of that. I just think it's interesting that it's there. We pointed that out in part two. But here's what I want to focus on, or at least get you thinking about. All right, here's what's interesting. Verse nine, All right, or verse eight, I should say. So this is not gonna come to pass. Then we have eight and nine. So it's not gonna come to pass. Don't worry, it's not going to happen. And then we have verse eight and nine. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. And within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken and it be not a people. Now, this seems to be very specific information, a prophecy about here's the reason you don't have to fear because here is exactly what's going to happen. How do we understand this? When did this happen? Where do we find the historical fulfillment for this? There is lots of questions here. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back. Uh, we're going to go back to verse 7. And I'm going to read it from a number of translations, all right? Um, from, for example, uh, well, I'm going to go back to verse six and just read it from one translation. Let us invade Judah, terrorize it, divide it among ourselves. Then we can install the son of Tabel over it as king. That's from the Berean uh, Study Bible, right? Then we come to verse seven, all right? Here's from the uh, New International Version. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. The New Living Translation. But this is what the sovereign Lord says. The invasion will never happen. It will never take place. The ESV. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. Berean Study Bible. But this is what the Lord God says. It will not arise. It will not happen. So this danger. Now I know there's lots of names and there's lots of things that we can try to figure out. The bottom line is, just to make it simple, is, hey, Ahaz, calm down, don't worry, don't be faint-hearted, don't fear, it's not going to happen. 
Next verse, verse 8. All right? I'm going to read this from a number of translations. All right? New International. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. New Living Translation. For Syria is no stronger than its capital, Damascus, and Damascus is no stronger than its king, Rezin. Now, that gives you some idea of what's being said here. That kind of helps you get an idea. When you read it the first time, you're kind of like, wait, what's going on? This helps clarify a little bit. What he's saying is, hey, look, Syria is no stronger than its capital, and and Damascus is no stronger than its king, Rezin. So, so Syria is no stronger than its capital, which is Damascus. Damascus is no stronger than its king, Rezin. So they're, they're, they're no stronger than that. You don't need to worry. Even if they come in a confederacy, you don't need to worry about them. They're really not that much to be fearful of. And this is important. As for Israel or Ephraim, within 65 years, it will be crushed and completely destroyed. So you don't need to worry about them. So in other words, none of this needs to be worried or fearful of because they're really only as strong as their, their capital or their king. And well, Israel, Ephraim, they're going to be destroyed. For the head of uh, the ESV, for the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. Bereading study Bible, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered as a people. Um, and then you, you, so we get the basic idea of what's going on here. Now let's, let's go to some commentaries and try to get an idea of a little bit more clarification so we can go, okay, within 65 years, what is this referring to exactly what is happening and so that we can have some clarification? Because I just felt this morning I didn't have the time to go into this. Now, some of this is going to bring up some issues because there are some scholars who question the legitimacy of some of this, and you'll see that in a minute. All right, here we go. You can go to BibleHub.com if you want to, BibleHub.com, and you can look at all of these commentaries I'm getting ready to reference. The head of Syria is Damascus. The prediction of the failure of the alliance is emphasized. So that's what's being emphasized here in Isaiah chapter 7. Is that verse 7? I'll make sure I've got the right verse. Or uh, verse 8, Isaiah 7 verse 8. What's being emphasized here is the failure of the alliance. And remember, this is all to bring, hey, Ahaz, don't worry. It's all, all of this is going to fail. And so this is to emphasize that this alliance against you, it's not going to succeed. Each city, Damascus and Samaria, should continue to be what it was, the head of a comparatively weak kingdom, and should not be basically made stronger or or any more powerful by the conquest of Judah and Jerusalem. There is an implied comparison of the two hostile cities with their kings, with Jerusalem and its supreme king, Jehovah. In other words, hey, they, they may get together, they have their king, they have their capital, they have whatever, but ultimately it doesn't stand against, well, the true God, the sovereign God, the true king. It, it, it won't stand against it. Bolder city, bold, uh, bolder critics, and then they name some of these critics, there's critics out there, 
who assume that a clause expressing that contrast has been displaced by what which now follows and which they reject as a later interpolation. Now, what's an interpolation? An interpolation is, I'm going to look at the definition, an interpolation is the insertion of something of a different nature into something else. So many people believe that that there, there's an interpolation here and that someone later came along and inserted this I this idea because it's drawing this comparison, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Isaiah 7, 8. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And then within three, three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken that it be not a people. There are some critics out there who come along and go, wait, 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 wait. That, that's inserted later. That, that has nothing to do with this comparison that they're being made. This, this, they almost call it into question. Now, this is where we can go back to the 1900s, the early 1900s, and a higher criticism that came from Germany, and we can get into that. Just whenever you read this kind of thing in commentaries, realize that these are higher critics. I've got no problem listening to their criticism, but just because you say it doesn't belong there, you would have to prove that it doesn't belong there, right? Hey, I don't believe this part is there. Now, why would they possibly question it? A lot of times they question it because they don't want to believe that the Bible, these are very liberal scholars who don't want to believe the Bible actually contained prophecy where God said something was going to happen and it happened. They like to believe that people came in after the fact, then put a prophecy there. And so therefore it's not really a prophecy. It's something that was inserted after the fact. This was a big issue of higher higher criticism that came sweeping into Christianity and liberal denominations, liberal seminaries, which led many people to pull out of the liberal, liberal seminaries and we could get to the rise of fundamentalism. We could go through a whole church history lesson, which we've talked about, and I won't go through all the things I've told people to read about these kinds of issues, but you get the idea. So, now, within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken, assuming the genuineness of the clause. So if we, if we believe the clause is genuine, and I would say if, if we're, if we're going to believe the Bible is the word of God, then we have to believe it's genuine unless I can be clearly demonstrated to me it's not genuine, okay? So we're going to go with the idea that it's a genuine, that, that this is really being told to Ahaz. Hey, don't worry about this. These other people are really nothing to be to be concerned with. They're really not that powerful. And Ephraim is going to be no more within uh, three score and five years. So assuming the genuineness of this clause, we have in the first direct, we have in, in it the first direct chronological prediction in the prophet's utterances. Others follow and they give a, num- a number of other chapters where there's basically some chronological predictions, like, hey, this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. Now, we could go through, maybe we'll look at these some other time, but for now, just realize this would be one of the first. They argue reckoning from B.C. 736 as the probable date of the prophecy. They believe this prophecy is actually being made around 736 BC. That's the assumed date, all right? And I got to look at something here. Okay, all right, here we go. 
Um, reckoning the, uh, from uh, B.C. 736 as the probable date of the prophecy, the 65 years brings us to B.C. 671. So they go, if we go from 736, they think that's when the prophecy probably occurred, to the to the the date of the prophecy, the 65 years brings us down to 671 BC. At the date of an Assyrian inscription, which shows that Asher Banipal, uh, co-regent with his father, Eshra Hadon, had carried off the last remnant of the people of Samaria and peopled and peopled it with an alien race. This completed the work which had been begun by Solomon, uh, by Sargon and uh, other others uh, and another king. It was was it Solomonizer? I can't I can't remember. Right, but and Sargon, Ephraim then was no more a people. So according to them, this is the way this would work. If we take this as being a legitimate thing, that this prophecy is given in 736 BC. 65 years later brings us to 671. At that date, we have an Assyrian, we have Assyrian inscriptions. They say plural, which shows that Asher Banipal, co-regent with his father uh, Asher Hadon, had carried off the last remnant of the people of Syria and peopled it with an alien race. This completed the work which was begun by other kings. Uh, and Second Kings seventeen six would show that, and therefore Ephraim was there, there was therefore no more a people. That this literally was carried out, and it took all the way to the. In other words, it may have started at an earlier date, but it was completely finished sixty five years later. That is what they are assuming. Let's go to another uh, commentary. See the same thing. Pulpit commentary. All right. Uh, for the head of Syria is Damascus. Syria and Ephraim have merely human heads. The one is resin, the other Pekah, but Judah, it is implied, has a divine head, even Jehovah. How then should mere mortals think to oppose their will and their designs to God's? Of course, their designs must come to naught. Within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken. If this prophecy was delivered, as we have supposed, in B.C. 733. Now, please note, you see the difference. One commentary says it's 736. The other one says it's 733. All right. This this is always the problem with sometimes trying to establish these historical accounts and, and dates. So was it 736? Was it 733? 65 years later would bring us to 669 B.C., Remember, the other commentary says to 661. Of course, where do you start the date? You count 65 years. But note what is similar. This was the year in which S.R. Hadon, having made his son Ashurbanipal, king of Assyria, transferred his own residence to Babylon, and probably the year in which he sent from Babylon and the adjacent countries a number of colonists who occupied Samaria and entirely destroyed the nationality, which 53 years earlier had received a rude blow from Sargon. That's 2 Kings 17, 6 through 24. 
It is questioned whether under the circumstances the prophet can have comforted Ahaz with this distant prospect and suggested that in the present chapter, prophecies pronounced at wildly distant periods have been mixed up. But there is no such appearance of dislocation in Isaiah 7. In its present form, as necessities any such theory, um, and as necessitates any such theory, and while it may be granted that the comfort of the promise given in verse 8, which be slight, it cannot be said would be nil, may therefore have been, as it seems to us, without impropriety, added uh, to the main promise, which of that of verse 7, the entire clause, and then they go on to, to get into detail. In other words, what they're saying is, some will argue, well, wait a minute. If this is not fulfilled for 65 years later, what comfort is that to Ahaz? Like Ahaz may be going, wait a minute, you're, you're telling me it's not going to take place and you're going to tell me that Ephraim is not going to be destroyed for 65 years or within 65 years. I need an answer right now that Ahaz may have been like, I need, I need, I need answers now. I need an army now. I need someone to stop the people trying to kill me now. You told me there's a threat. What are we going to do now? Now, of course, we don't have Ahaz's words, but we do have his actions which are mingled with his words, when God said, I'll give you a sign. And he's like, nope, I'm not taking a sign. Is he not taking a sign because he's spiritual or is he not taking a sign because he's like, look, your promise is useless. I'll be dead by then. I need something now. So I'm going to institute my plan. Is, is that a possibility? Well, because of Ahaz's character, there is a good probability that is the way he was thinking. All right. So we have, we know this. We may have some disagreements on where this prophecy, the date it was given, and when it finally finds its fulfillment, but there seems to be no doubt that about 65 years later, it was finally completed, and basically Ephraim was no more. There were no more. All right, that, there seems to be no argument about that. The only argument is when did it start and when did it stop? We, you can have that dispute. The question is, did it happen? And it happened, and I want to make this very clear, literally. Now, I've got to stress this. One of the major issues with the, with the prophets, major and minor prophets, is sometimes common, sometimes Bible students will lay, okay, that prophecy is literal, that prophecy is not literal. And they become, they go back and forth about when do they want to make it literal, when do they not want to make it literal. I think we always go with a literal prophecy, with a literal fulfillment, unless something in the text screams at us that we cannot interpret that that way. Because it's really weird. Like, no, when it says a virgin will have a, 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 a child and it will be God with us, that's literal. But when it talks about Israel being restored and no, 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 that's not literal. Whoa, 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 you, you slow down here. How did you get to choose when it is and when it isn't? Clearly, Ephraim being destroyed and no more people, literal. Obviously, a virgin having a child and his, and his name being Emmanuel, God with us, literal. So we're getting a pretty good hermeneutic in how to interpret the rest of Isaiah. Very important lesson to consider, all right? Now let's go to verse 8, or verse 9. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. New Living Translation, Israel is no stronger than its capital, Samaria, uh, Samaria, and Samaria is no stronger than its king, Pekah's son of Ramalia. Unless your faith is firm, I cannot make you stand firm. 
ESV, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all, right? So basically, hey, they're, they're, these people, they're no stronger than its capital. They're no stronger than its king. They're, they're, you don't, don't worry about this. Don't, don't, you don't worry about that. In other words, th- their strength is an earthly strength, an earthly power, an earthly political power, an earthly alliance. That, doesn't con- that cannot stand before the sovereign God, creator of heaven and the earth. That's the contrast. There's their earthly power. They're going to collapse, but I am the true God. It's not going to occur. Trust in me. Right? You can stand firm if you trust in me. If you don't trust in God, you're not going to stand firm. You're going to come up with your own ideas. Then the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Right? That's verse 10, Isaiah 7:10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, New Living Translation. Later, the Lord sent the message to King Ahaz, ESV. You get the idea. So now God is going to speak to him again. And then verse 11. Ask the Lord your God for a sign whether it's the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Hey, ask for a sign. Ask for a sign. Um, The New Living Translation, I like how they put it. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. You You just name the place, make it difficult, and I'll give you a sign to show you that these these kingdoms, they're not, they can't succeed. They're going to, it's going to, the alliance is not going to succeed. And well, Ephraim is going to be destroyed in 65 years. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. I will not do, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. Now, the, the commentaries do this. All right. Um, The king speaks, I'm going to read just a couple of commentaries and see how they interpret this. The king speaks in the very accents of faith. He will not put Jehovah to any such test. Not perhaps with a sneer, he quotes almost the very formula of the law, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Was the prophet going to forget his own teaching and become a tempter to that sin? That which lay beneath this show of humble trust was simply self-will and utter unfaith. He had already made up his mind to the Assyrian alliance against which he knew Isaiah was certain to protest. The fact that the words that follow are spoken to the whole house of David may perhaps imply that the older members of the royal family were encouraging the king and his Assyrian projects and had perhaps suggested his hypocrisy hypocritical answer. So they clearly say his answer is hypocritical. And I think if we look at the character of Ahaz, that's why I told you to do a background study of Ahaz. I think you're going to be like, there's nothing about him that would be like, I'm worried about displeasing God. He's instituted sacrifice. He's, he's taken things out of the temple. He's completely turned to God from God and is an idolater. So why would he care about what God thinks? He's already made up his mind. He's already working on an alliance and he doesn't want to wait 65 years for this to finally, no, 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 no. He, he, he wants this. He's, he's taking matters into his own hands. He doesn't care about any of this. And I, I do think it's a little bit hypocritical. And the, and the practical implication would be, and what I want you to, this is a practical thing. I want you to think about this week and I want you to meditate on. All right. Really want you to think about this. 
In what ways do you use religiosity, spirituality, and scripture to cover up your own self-will, your own ungodliness, your own selfishness, your own unforgiveness, your own hatred? What? When have you used religiosity, Christianity, theology, you've used scripture to cover up your own, your own self-will? your own sin. We're very good at like, we want to do something and boom, we'll cover it up in spirituality. We'll throw a, we'll, we'll throw a scripture on it and we're still doing what we want to do. But we're, we're, we're claiming that we're doing it spiritually. Like we, we can claim while we're gossiping and slandering someone because we don't like them, we'll claim that we're just sharing a prayer request. So we, we, can, we can use our, our spirituality to cover up our most base motivations. And we've got to figure out when we do that, because that seems to be what he is doing here. All right. So uh, one more commentary. Ahaz, who, who has no wish for a sign because he has no wish to believe in any other salvation than, than Flint, which will follow from the realization of his own schemes, finds a plausible reason for declining to ask for one in those passages of the law which forbade men to tempt God. In other words, he just looked for a spiritual excuse to put forth, I don't want a sign because I don't want God's solution. I don't want God's salvation. I want my salvation. I want the one that I can come up with. I think, I think that's very important. Let me, let me just give you an example, Right? I, I think I think we can see this. We, we saw this happen during the COVID situation, right? During the COVID pandemic. We got scripture that seems to say, submit and obey the authority over you. But then people were like, no, 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 no. The righteous thing to do, the godly thing to do is to take a stand against this liberal political movement to take away our religious freedoms. We try to act like that we're actually engaged in a spiritual battle when all we're really doing is rebelling against God-ordained authority. Sometimes we can try to even use, make it sound spiritual when we're actually going against Scripture sometimes. Right? Now, I know that could create all kinds of controversy, but yeah, we, we could get a discussion there. All right? Now, oh, wait, I just messed up. Let's go to verse 13 now. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? The New Living Translation. Then Isaiah said, listen well, you royal family of David. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? What's interesting is it just seems like, okay, Ahaz, moving on. <laughs> okay, It's like, okay, Ahaz, we, I, I've heard your little spiritual argument for why you don't want to sign. Look, we're just going to move on. Next. House of David, how long are you going to continue to basically try to exhaust God? How long are you? It goes beyond, it seems, Ahaz. I I think there's a little bit of of truth to that. Um, Some of the commentaries say this. The thought that men may try the long-suffering of God uh, uh, till he is weary to bear them, especially characteristic of Isaiah. Uh, We mark the change note of my God as compared with the Lord thy God. Ahaz has involved himself in a sentence of rejection. And the per- first part of the question, Isaiah becomes the mouthpiece of a widespread, hopeless discontent. Men also were weary of this idolatrous and corrupt misgovernment. 
uh, O house of David, it is not Ahaz alone, but the house of David, which is on its trial. Men are conspiring to remove it. It will not be saved in God's way. It will have to be removed by God himself. Is it a small thing to, to, uh, for you to weary men? Are you not content with your wearying men with disregarding all my warnings and so wearying me? Must you go further and even weary God? Isaiah had called Jehovah thy God, but as Ahaz, by rejecting God's offer, had rejected God, he speaks of him now as my God. That's, that's an interesting thing we could talk about. But the bottom line is, hey, you're, you're, all, you're all going against God. Now, okay, what, what is God going to do here? How, what, how is he going to, to, to step up here? This is what he says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. New Living Translation. All right, then. The Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin shall conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. All right, then I'm going to look at some of the commentaries here. Now, this is where we get into a little bit of discussion here. Should this be translated virgin? There is much dispute here. You just need to be aware of this because before you come to someone who will challenge you on this, you need to know this. According to one uh, commentary here, better behold the young woman or perhaps the bride shall conceive. The first noun has the definite article in the Hebrew and the word, though commonly used of the unmarried, strictly speaking denotes rather one who has arrived at a marriageable age bride in the old English and German sense of the word as applied to one who is about to become a wife or is still a young wife. Perhaps best express its relation to the two Hebrew words, which respectively and distinctively are used for virgin and for wife. Um, in Psalm 68:26, the authorized version gives damsels, the mysterious uh, prophecy which was thus delivered to Ahaz has been very differently interpreted. So it has been very much interpreted differently. Here's what I would challenge you to do. There's lots of dispute here and how it should be translated. And they're like, wait, there was no promise of a virgin birth. Therefore, here's what I want you to do. I want you to ignore that, all of the arguments. I want you to go to the New Testament. Find where Isaiah 7.14 is quoted. Is Isaiah 7.14 quoted in the New Testament? All right. Is it clearly referred to? Find where it's referenced and then look at everything around you and make it see, does the New Testament make it clear that Mary was a virgin? Now, you can argue all day about the Hebrew in Isaiah 7, but if the New Testament comes along and says that prophecy was fulfilled right here and the New Testament makes it clear that Mary was a virgin, then you can argue all day about what the Hebrew is in Isaiah 7, but the New Testament makes it clear the fulfillment of it was Jesus and he was born of a virgin. And I will argue if he wasn't born of a virgin, then he's not God incarnate. And if he's not God incarnate, then he was born with a sinful nature. Therefore, he could not save us. Therefore, the Messiah has not come. Therefore, there is no salvation. Therefore, Christianity is false. You have to believe in a virgin birth. If you reject a virgin birth, you reject the deity of Christ. Therefore, Jesus is not God. Therefore, Jesus has not saved us. And therefore, he's a fraud. And we can just forget the whole New Testament. We can just call it a day and go home. Right? Or, well, you're home. I'm, I'm here at church. You get the idea. Okay? So, 
Just make sure. There, there's lots of arguments there. Just make sure you understand that. The pulpit commentary, they go a little further here. Uh, to show that your perversity cannot change God's designs, which will be accomplished whether you hear or whether you forbear, the Lord himself, the Lord himself of his own free will, unasked, will give you a sign. In other words, you may reject it. You may not want a sign, but God's going to give a sign anyway. You may not want it, but God's going to give a sign. Signs were of various kinds. They might be actual miracles performed to attest a divine commission or judgments of God, of God uh, signifying his power and justice or memorials, something in the past, or pledges of something still future. Signs of this last mentioned kind might be miracles or prophetic announcements. The, 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 these last would only have effect of signs on those who witnessed their accomplishments. Then it says, behold, a forewarning of a great event. Behold, something great. A virgin shall conceive. It is questioned whether the word translated virgin has necessarily that meaning, but it is admitted that the meaning is borne out by every other place in which the word occurs in the Old Testament. Now, here's what I would challenge you to do. Look up the Hebrew word there for virgin in Isaiah 7, 14. In fact, we can just go to the Blue Letter Bible app right now. Blue Letter Bible app. We didn't have a chance to do this this morning. Isaiah 7, verse 14. I'm going to go to the interlinear. Behold a virgin, and you probably know the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word, I'm going to take my iPad out of my, out of the case. All right? Here is the Hebrew word. You probably all know it. Strong's H, 5959. Alma. Alma. Alma, Alma. Now, this is what you're going to find here. Uh, the, uh, this is comes from Theological Word Book of the Old Testament, page 672, and it's quoted right here in the interlinear. There is no instance where it can be proved that Alma designates a young woman who is not a virgin. The fact of virginity is obvious in Genesis 24, 43, where Alma is used of one who is being sought as a bride for Isaac. Alma is used seven times. All right. Now, all you got to do is I want you to look up all seven places and see if you think it does it. How, how is it used and does that hold true? According to this, there is no instance where it can be proved that Alma designates a young woman who is not a virgin. They will argue that, no, there's nothing that would argue that it's not a virgin. So in other words, if you're going to say it's not a virgin there, you would have to say, well, Alma can be used for referring to a woman who isn't a virgin. Well, are you, are you just inferring that? Well, see, it doesn't say virgin there, but yeah, but does it? imply that the woman is not a virgin or can it be understood that the woman is a virgin? I, again, you, I, I want you to just look. I mean, there's only seven references. We could do it right now, but you look them up. I remember, Bible study exercise, I'm supposed to be giving you something to do. You go look it up. But I, I want to just drive this point home. I cannot stress this enough. What You can debate all day about Isaiah 7. You can just run yourself in circles. Just go to the New Testament. What does the New Testament do? Does it, does it make a reference to Isaiah 7? And does it imply that the woman who gave birth to the one who is called Emmanuel was a virgin? I think the New Testament is emphatic that Mary was a virgin. 
Clearly. It's like, there's no, we don't have to debate about a Hebrew word or a Greek word. It's clear. Therefore, Mary was a virgin. She gave birth to the one who was called Emmanuel, God with us. And he was God with us because he was God incarnated into human flesh. He took upon human flesh the incarnation. And let me stress it again. Anyone who denies the virgin birth has completely deviated from biblical Christianity. Any, anyone who denies the virgin birth, you need to run from, hide from, flee, pray for, because that is an abandonment of Christianity. It's the denial of the deity of Christ. Right? I cannot stress that enough, all right? So they go on to say here, um, it is questioned whether the word translated virgin um, has uh, Alma has necessarily that meaning, but it is admitted that the meaning is borne out by every other place in which the word occurs in the Old Testament. And you can look up every place the word appears. Uh, they say the Septuagint, writing two centuries before the birth of Christ, translated uh, the rendering virgin, translated, uh, translated by the rendering virgin, has the support of the best modern, uh, basically, linguist at the time. It is observed with reason that unless Alma is translated virgin, there is no announcement made worthy of the grand, grand prelude. The Lord himself shall give you a sign, behold. In other words, if it's not a virgin, then it would just be another woman giving birth to a child. So why would that be like, behold, here is the sign that God himself is going to give. What would be, what would be so significant about a woman just giving birth to a son? Lots of sons are born. Isaiah had his own son with him when he talked to Ahaz. There wouldn't be anything special. It has to be a virgin because that makes then, behold, the Lord himself is going to give a sign. Yeah, it's going to be something spectacular, something amazing, something never seen before. A virgin is going to bring forth a son. All right? So I think that's very important. Um, so it says, uh, there is no announcement made worthy of the grand prelude. The Lord himself should give a sign, behold. Uh, the Hebrew, however, has not a virgin, but the virgin, and so the Septuagint, which points to some special virgin, virgin pro, uh, proeminent above all the others, and shall call better than the marginal rendering, thou shall call, it was regarded as the privilege of a mother to determine her child's name, uh, although formerly the ch uh, father gave it, Emmanuel translated for us by St. Matthew as God with us. God with us. Now, yeah, there's more I could say there. there I, I will throw this out there. So you can look up Alma. You can, you can do a little bit of work on that. Just make sure you find in the New Testament. I want you to find it, and I want you to write the New Testament reference right there in Isaiah 7 in your Bible. Have the cross reference. Make sure it's there. Write it. Because there's the answer. Like you can debate. Like sometimes you got to figure out when in the middle of a debate, do I just run in circles over how this Hebrew word is used and everyone's going to pull up their linguistic experts and you're going to just argue and argue. Look, the New Testament makes it clear Mary was a virgin. I don't know how you can get around that. And it makes a reference to Isaiah demonstrating that that's the fulfillment of it. And once you have that, then you either believe, then you either believe Matthew and the New Testament writers were lying, right? Therefore, well, put it this way. Even if you believe the New Testament writers were lying, why would they go, why would they argue that it's a virgin if, if that in Isaiah, it wasn't implying that it was a virgin? Like, why would they, 
Why would they, if they're going to make a lie, saying, hey, Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, why would they so emphasize Mary's virginity if Isaiah is not saying that in the Hebrew? That would be like, hey, we, 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 we don't need to say that she's a virgin. Like, we're making this whole story up. Why would they then add that she's a virgin if it's not there in the Hebrew? I think the fact that they record that in the New Testament is because they understand that's what, requ- that's what will be required to fulfill the prophecy that's stated in Isaiah. That's the only way to understand that, all right? So, but it has to be a virgin. Now, here's the question. All right, Ahaz, look, none of this is going to happen. Ephraim's going to be destroyed in 65 years, right? Don't, don't. Everything's going to be taken care of here. Don't don't worry about anything. He's like, nope, I'm not going to take a sign because he's already made a, a, an alliance. Uh, I think I think with the I, I think it goes back to let me see here. I, I don't want to misquote something. Give me one second. I'm going to go back to the commentary here to make sure I don't uh, make up something here. Um, let's see here. Um, yeah, he's, he's made up his mind to the Assyrian alliance. For some reason, my mind was thinking, Nate, he, 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 was making a, he wasn't making an alliance with uh, Israel, with Ephraim. No, he was making it with the Assyrians. Okay, so yeah. I, for some reason, my, my brain was, I was getting confused there. So I want to make sure. So he had made up his mind. He was going to rely on the Assyrians. God's like, look, all of this is going to fall apart. It's not going to work. Uh, 65 years, Ephraim's going to be gone. And clearly he's like, he doesn't want, either he doesn't want to wait. He doesn't believe it. He doesn't care. He's got his own mind. He doesn't, he's not going to do it. He's just going to reject it. And God's like, okay, you're going to reject it. Fine. House of David. Here is the sign. The sign ultimately is a virgin is going to bring forth a child. His name is going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. He will bring the ultimate deliverance, the ultimate salvation. Right now, you can. There are some disputes saying, "Well, wait a minute. There had to be some. Was there some fulfillment in some historical way where where a son was born, and that was at least a partial fulfillment? See that that son. Would, but I, I I don't know why some people would look to. Uh, I think it's Hezekiah. I think some people look to Hezekiah as a possible fulfillment. I think they do. I can't re- I can't remember. You can you can chase that rabbit. I just think it's a, it's a, it's a it's an exercise in futility because if that means virgin, then it means virgin, and the fulfillment is is pointed to Christ. So I think it's like you don't why why would he go ahead and give him a sign? No, you reject the sign. Here's the sign I'm going to give, and the sign is the ultimate salvation, the ultimate deliverance is going to be from spiritual bondage from spiritual danger, from the wrath of God, from eternal hell. That's what he's ultimately going to save you from. All right, now, I'm going to do this really quick. Now, you've got verse 13. Um, let's see. I'm sorry, verse 15, verse 16. You can do whatever you want with verse 15 and 16. And then we come to verse 17 to verse 17. Now, multiple times, I keep saying we have, we've got to work on verse 17 and following. I want you to work on verse 17 through 25 and figure out exactly what's going on. We'll do just, we'll just get us started here. 
We're at 51 minutes. We'll just get us started, and then you can, you can see what you're going to do. I'm going to read from a number of translations. Isaiah 7, 17. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. New Living Translation. Then the Lord will, will bring things on you, your nation and your family, unlike anything since Israel broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria upon you. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house. Such days have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. The Berean Study Bible, the Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since the day Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. All right. Now, this is a, well, we'll just look at some of the commentaries. All right. We'll just look at some of the commentaries. The prophet's language here shows that he reads the secret thoughts of the king's heart. He was bent on calling in the help of the king of Assyria. This seems to show the reason he denied a sign is because he was, he was already thinking of the king of Assyria. So God just steps in and says, okay, you don't want a sign? Listen, house of David, here is the sign. Then here's about the one who's going to come. He's going to be called, he's going to be born of a virgin. Emmanuel, God with us. Here's a little bit about him. Now, boom, I'm going to return. Here's what's going to happen, Ahaz. Here's the sign, but here's what's going to happen. All right? Um, Isaiah warns him, reserving the name of the king with all the emphasis of suddenness for the close of, for the close of his sentence, that by so doing, he is bringing on himself a more formidable invasion than that of Syria and Ephraim, worse than, than any that had been known since the separation of the two kingdoms, all right? Um, and then, well, you can, you can go through and find everything that takes place here, all right? Uh, the, uh, the perversity of Ahaz, already rebuked in verse 13, is further punished by a threat that upon him and upon his people and upon his father's house shall come shortly a dire calamity, The very power whose aid he himself is bent on invoking shall be the scourge to chastise both king and people. So in other words, he wants the Assyrians. The Assyrians are going to come and they are going to punish and damage and do horrible things. And that is what is going to happen. Um, If you, if you, I think I've got a cross-reference here, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, look at, you. well, we won't look at it right now. Just look at 2 Chronicles 28.20. You can look at 2 Chronicles 28.20, and I think you see what happens here. You think you get an idea, all right? You can look there. Let's, let's go to the next verse, though, all right? Um, and then he says, uh, then they go on to say, in that day, the Lord will whistle for flies from the Nile Delta in Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. The New Living Translation, in that day, the Lord will whistle for the army of southern Egypt and for the army of Assyria. They will swarm around you like flies and bees. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bees that is in the land of Assyria. Now, the the commentary stated this way. Uh, 
the legions of Egypt are represented by the flies that swarmed on the banks of the Nile uh, and those of Assyria by the bees of their forest and of their hills. The mention of Egypt indicates that some of the king's counselors were then as afterwards planning an Egyptian alliance as others were relying on that which uh, that with Assyria. The prophet tells them that each is fraught with danger, no help, and much evil would come from such plans. Consistent in his policy from first to last, the one counsel he gives is that men should practice righteousness and wait upon the Lord. In other words, all these people they're going to possibly turn to, there's nothing but danger, problems that's going to come because they're rejecting God and they're looking for, well, a a political alliance to fix their problems, all right? Then the next verse, verse 19, they all will come and settle in the steep ravines and the crevices and the rocks and all the thorn brushes and at the water holes. They will come in vast hordes, settle in the fertile areas, also in the desolate valleys, caves, and thorny places. They're all going to come in. They're going to take over. And well, this is not going to be good for you in any way, shape, or form. Um, and then, uh, yeah, well, you get the basic idea. Next verse, Isaiah seven twenty. And that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave your heads and, well, we'll just say your heads and other parts of your body. The the, the, uh, the, NI, the NIV says uh, private parts and to cut off your beards also. And that day, the Lord will hire a razor from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, and use it to shave off everything, your land, your crops, and your people, all right? So in other words, this is not going to be a good, this, uh, uh, this is not going to be a good situation that's going to come upon you, all right? And well, we could, we could go and read a little bit more about what's going to happen. All right, 721. And that day a person will keep alive a young, well, I'll stop right there. I'll stop right there. Clearly, hey, you don't want God, what God's going to do all right, then you want this alliance. You look for your earthly alliance. You look for your earthly alliance. You look for your earthly deliverance. You cling to that. You And you're, you're going to reap the consequences of it. You're going to reap the consequences of it. What you should focus on is what God promised and what God would do. And then because you reject his sign, the ultimate sign he's going to give is the sign of his son, and again, this is the idea that sometimes, and I'm just going to throw this concept out there, that what we want is an earthly deliverance. We want an earthly alliance that will give us an earthly deliverance from temporary circumstances. And what we should look for is an earthly or a spiritual and heavenly solution for a spiritual and eternal deliverance. Do you want an earthly temporal deliverance, or do you want a spiritual, heavenly, eternal deliverance? Sometimes we look, we want the world to get better, so we look for political alliances to make the world better, instead of looking for, well, the eternal Son of God and eternal salvation, because that's the deliverance we should long for. All right, we'll have to stop right there. All right. We, we went all in on Isaiah 7. There's a lot there we could, and, and, and your homework is, in fact, let me look here. Does it name? I think it, does it give the name here? Give me one second. I, there, I didn't really, I kept, was getting ready to give you homework, and then I really just kind of do all the, uh, all the work for you. Uh, does it name? 
the king of Assyria that's going to come upon him. Is he named here? I don't think he's named here. Yeah, I don't think he, you you can you can you can identify who is the Assyrian king that is brought upon Ahaz and, and, and this happens. Who who is the Assyrian king? You 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 can you can just work to find that answer. Right, I'll just let you, that'll be your homework for now. I've done pretty much everything for you. Read, meditate, think, 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 read, meditate. That's what I want you to do, all right? And you can work on the Hebrew word for virgin there as well. But who, who is the, the, the Assyrian king who's going to do all of this? Who, and when did, it ha- when did it happen? Do you know when it happened? How, how it happened? You, you can let me know. I think if you look up Ahaz, I think if you look up Ahaz, you see here. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I'm going to look up Ahaz here. Give me one second. Uh, Isaiah. Ahaz. Uh, see here. Now we know. Uh, let's see where where does it here? Ah, yeah. Uh, he he requests help from a certain king, the king of Syria, offering him silver and gold. At first, the plan worked, and Assyria invaded Israel and Syria. Ultimately, however, Assyria is uh, distressed Ahaz, demanding excessive tribute. All right, uh, yeah, you 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 can see you can see. I'm looking at the name of the king right here. I'm looking at him. All right, I'm not looking at him. Looking at the name. You you can see. You can look at and see how 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 did all of the did all of those things happen with that king that I'm looking at. You can look just look up Ahaz. You can figure it out once you find the name of that king. Look up that king and then see what he did and see if that fulfills the promise that was alluded to or the prophecy that was alluded to right here in Isaiah seven. And it just demonstrates you look for earthly earthly alliance, earthly power for a temporal deliverance. You ultimately get condemnation and death and judgment. You have to look for an eternal deliverance, spiritual alliance. You look to God. You you don't want the, the temporal deliverance is not near as important as the spiritual deliverance. So, all right, a lot we could talk about there. All right, good stuff. Hopefully it will be beneficial to you. Uh, it's crazy that on Sunday, we've pretty much almost We've done we went we've done so much in Isaiah seven already. We'll just see what we talk about the rest of the week. A lot of your feedback is going to be greatly important for how we proceed the rest of the week. But you got plenty of time to meditate, 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 meditate on this and think about it. So I'll stop right there. Email me newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. All right. It's now almost seven o'clock. Wow. I've been here. I feel like I've spent all day here. Hopefully, I've, I've, I've produced something that benefited someone. So hopefully, I did. All right, everyone have a great one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to head home. All right, good night. Have a great week. Isaiah 7, live in it. Become an expert on Isaiah. By the end of the week, I want you to know more about Isaiah 7 than you've ever known at any point in your life. And then when you hear people rip the verse out of context for the rest of the Christmas season, you can go, have you ever actually studied the chapter? Do you actually know the context? Do you actually know what's going on? Do you what, do you know how to understand that prophecy in light of the historical setting? And yeah, you can you can do some have some interesting conversations. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great night. God bless.